friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Hey, you saved my bacon back there. Sorry I was so slow getting to you. You'd have been a little slower, you'd have stood to be a lot richer. Maybe I didn't think of that. Too bad you never knew Ace Hannah. Ran a gambling joint back in Laredo. Shot my old man in the stud game when I was still a kid. Ace felt so bad he'd give me a home. What's that got to do with my saving your life? Ace used to say, don't take any chances you don't have to. Don't trust anybody you don't have to trust. And don't do no favors you don't have to do. Ace lived long enough to know he was right. He lived 30 seconds after I shot him. You know something? That's the first time I ever told anybody the story of my life. That was Burt Lancaster revealing a dark personal secret to Gary Cooper in the 1954 classic Vera Cruz, which we'll be discussing on this episode of How the West Was Cast. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. And joining us today to discuss Vera Cruz is a very special guest who we're excited to have on the show. She's an award-winning recording artist whose work blends country and western ballads with cinematically inspired music to brilliant effect. Her 2018 album Killing Fever is a personal favorite of mine, and her latest release, Songs from the Silver Screen, is every bit as special. Comprised of cover versions of ten beloved western movie themes, it just might be the perfect album for listeners of this podcast. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome the one and only Sarah Vista to the show. Howdy, everyone. Real pleasure to have you here today, Miss Vista. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. Can you come and can you come and introduce me every time I take the stage, please? <laughs> that would be great. I, I have to tell everybody who can't see this podcast, of course, that Sarah, as usual, is decked out in the best outfit, killer hat, scarf, guitar behind her. She never doesn't look uh, a million bucks. She just looks great here. The pistols are loaded too. I meant to ask you about that costumes. I, I know later on in the show, we're going to talk about your work, but your outfits, the costumes that you wear when you perform, are, do you have a wide collection of uh, Western gear? I do. I Yeah, I do. I'm always looking for random things in thrift stores and online and, and yeah, anything Anything I can get my hands on, really. I usually go and wreck it and take it to the desert and kick it around a bit to give it the real movie feel. And, um, yeah, but I have a lot of fun in my in my costumes. We're not allowed real guns over here, but um, I've got a few movie replicas. And Your hats always look great. The, the whole you. outfits always look great. So we'll be speaking with Sarah about her new album later in the show. But first, Andrew, why don't you set the scene and give us some backstory on Vera Cruz? Happy to. Vera Cruz was the second film of a two-picture contract between United Artists and the actor Burt Lancaster and his producing partner Harold Hecht. The first film of the deal, 1954's Apache, was a success, and so Hecht and Lancaster reunited with director Robert Aldrich for another, somewhat unusual western, about a former Confederate soldier who falls in with an outlaw looking to deal himself into the Franco-Mexican War on the side of the highest bidder. Lancaster plays the outlaw, Joe Aaron, and the great Gary Cooper plays the Southerner, Ben Train, the first and only time Lancaster and Cooper would share the screen. Rounding out the cast are Denise Darcel, Cesar Romero, Sarah Montiel, and a veritable who's who of familiar Western faces, including Ernest Borgnine, Jack Elam, and Charles Bronson as members of Aaron's gang. 
The movie's screenplay is based on a story by Borden Chase. Chase was one of the most influential Western screenwriters of the 1940s and 50s, penning Red River and three of the celebrated Jimmy Stewart Anthony Mann Westerns, among other titles. Vera Cruz employs Borden's familiar journey narrative, but forgoes the writer's usual emphasis on revenge and neurosis in favor of an amusing cynicism as characters cross and double-cross each other from the opening credits to the final shootout. Veracruz was shot on location in Mexico, though not in Veracruz, and premiered on Christmas Day 1954. It was the first movie released in Superscope, a widescreen process that involved cropping the 35mm frame to achieve a 2.1 aspect ratio in post-production. Critical response to Veracruz was mixed. New York Times reviewer Bosley Crowther called it an atrocious film loaded with meaningless violence and standard horse opera cliches. The whole picture appears to be designed as a mere exhibition of how wicked and vicious men can be. Others were more complimentary, praising the film's action sequences and striking Mexican locations. More importantly, the film was a hit with audiences and quickly became the highest grossing film in the history of United Artists. Veracruz's strategic casting of not one but two leading male stars soon became common practice for Westerns. Gunfight at the OK Corral, 310 to Yuma, Rio Bravo, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance are but four well-known examples, all of which, like Veracruz, focus on the evolving complex relationship between the two protagonists. Westerns about American heroes engaged in mercenary exploits in Mexico also became a staple of later Western production, as in The Magnificent Seven, A Fistful of Dollars, The Professionals, and The Wild Bunch. In hindsight, then, we see that Veracruz was at the leading edge of a number of major trends in Western movie making in the decades after its release. So for this episode, we've each selected two key elements from Vera Cruz that we want to highlight and discuss. Now, these can be anything from a specific performance to a favorite scene to a line of dialogue or a theme that we think is especially noteworthy. So, Andrew, what's your first choice? My first topic is Gary Cooper's performance. We could, and surely will, devote multiple episodes of How the West Was Cast to Gary Cooper. If John Wayne sits atop the pantheon of great Western performers, then Cooper can't be far below. From the Virginian to the Plainsman to the Westerner to High Noon, Cooper made important Westerns at every stage of his career. Toward the end of that career, the disillusionment of his High Noon character Will Kane gives way to a series of cynical but gentlemanly heroes in search of redemption, first in Vera Cruz and then in Man of the West and The Hanging Tree. While Cooper's southern accent in Vera Cruz may leave something to be desired, his performance as a man who fought for and lost everything is otherwise engrossing. When the Warista General Ramirez praises Train for fighting for the South, a brave struggle, senor, my congratulations. Train rebuffs him. What for? We lost. Veracruz is filled with such moments as Cooper alternately upholds and undermines aspects of his familiar Western persona. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if there's another actor from Gary Cooper's era who captured that feeling of disillusionment as well as he did. It's just what he does best, I think, especially in this later portion of his career. He always looked so sad, like he had just come from a funeral or something, but he made that work in such a, a magnetic way. You really felt for this guy. And the character he plays here, like you said, has lost everything. And who better to cast in this role than Cooper? No one's got a bad word to say about Cooper as, as a person as well. And that's that's quite nice. Um, I was reading Ernest Borgnine's biography and he was talking about his time on Vera Cruz. And he was just saying that Gary Cooper was incredible, just such a great person and such a great actor. And he was really good to the locals. And apparently he gave all the food meant for him away to the Mexican kids and then went and used his own money to go and buy food from the local Mexicans to sort of boost their economy. And I just, I love Gary Cooper. <laughs> He's just great. I read that story too. And certainly those stories are common. Anytime Gary Cooper yeah. made a movie, he was just the quintessential gentleman. Mm. I guess the only person who might have had a bad word about him was his uh, his wife, whom he <laughs> cheated on. But other than that, um, I mean, to your, to your point, Matthew, the, the interesting thing about Cooper, especially this period, is how, well, firstly, how old he looks. I mean, he's only six years older than John Wayne, for example, but he looks ancient. And the other bit of extra textual knowledge that I can't help but read into all of these later performances are how he was in constant pain uh, from a number of health concerns. Uh, he had terrible ulcers in this film. He suffered a hip injury from a horse fall. He was also burnt uh, when Lancaster fired a rifle too close to his shoulder. So I, I can't help but read that kind of physical pain into the types of performances that he he gives, that world weariness that you identified. Yeah, maybe that's why in this performance, he seems so still. So to know that behind the scenes, he was in that kind of pain that you're talking about adds an extra layer of sadness to this role. I, I like to compare his performance here to Rock Hudson in The Undefeated. It's a similar character who's lost a lot, but Cooper seems so much more believable throughout this than Rock Hudson did in that one. Although Hudson, of course, was fine in it. But Cooper here is just, he really tugs at the heartstrings. You feel for this guy who's not a shining hero. And yet something about Gary Cooper, all the films that he brings with him, makes us feel so much more for, for this guy who's, who's not the hero that we would expect in a Western. Now, Sarah, you're a real big High Noon fan, correct? I love High Noon, yeah. One of my first big, memorable westerns I saw. And you have a song from that that film? I did cover High Noon on my silver screen record because it's just a classic. And I remember it as a small girl. It's just one of those, you know, the Tex Ritter and the Frankie Lane. I bought both and I used to compare them. And I just have a real soft spot for that film. His performance is incredible in that movie. Um, everything about that movie I, I just love. I loved it since I was small. So yeah, it was a real honor to get to sing it in my own way. I sometimes wonder if, because High Noon is such a, a seminal film, not only as a Western, but just as a film in general, if that film didn't color our perception of, of Gary Cooper in a, in a really kind of profound way. I often think about just the sheer number of Westerns that Cooper made, yet he doesn't occupy I think a space in our thinking about the Western that's commensurate with the number of Westerns, important Westerns that he made. What do you, what do you think? Am I right about that? 
It's the first film I think of when I think Gary Cooper. I just think High Noon. Those nominated for the best performance by an actor are Marlon Brando, Viva Zapata, 20th Century Fox, Gary Cooper, High Noon, Kramer, United Artists, Kirk Douglas, The Bad and the Beautiful, MGM, Jose Ferrer, Moulin Rouge, Romulus, United Artists, and Alec Guinness, the Lavender Hill Mob, Rank Ealing, Universal, International. In the absence of the winter, John Wayne will accept the award for Gary Cooper. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad to see that they're giving this to a man who is not only most deserving, but has conducted himself throughout his years in our business in a manner that we can all be proud of him. Coop and I have been friends hunting and fishing for more years than I like to remember. He's one of the nicest fellows I know. I don't know anybody any nicer. Okay, Sarah, and what is your first choice? There is so much that I like about Vera Cruz. I really did struggle to whittle this down, but I've decided to pick a subject of great importance to me and my music, and that is the role of women in Westerns. Vera Cruz presents two leading ladies I feel are really well portrayed by the French actress Denise Darcel as the seemingly noble Countess Duvar who the two leading men are hired to escort across the border. The Spanish actress Sara Montiel shines really brightly as Nina, whose character is introduced as the thieving Mexican peasant girl. As we know, she's later revealed as an undercover warista who goes on to take quite a significant slice of the limelight as she joins the posse. The two women never physically cross paths in a scene, but their characters are definitely integral to the plot and they're intertwined throughout the movie. Robert Aldrich has always been fascinated by the cynical aspects of human nature, and this is apparent in his great portrayals of complex women in later movies like Baby Jane, The Legend of Lila Clare, and The Killing of Sister George. I feel there are early signs of this in the women of Vera Cruz. Countess Duvar initially appears this elegant, attractive, and vivacious woman who the men instantly admire. Nina, however, is presented as this down-at-heels, untrustworthy thief as she's seen successfully trading Train's wallet for a kiss as he saves her from the clutches of the nasty young Charles Bronson. Train and Nina are reunited on the wagon convoy, and this is where the attraction between them deepens. It's here that he sort of calls out her real identity and challenges her for stealing his wallet, a token that she actually kept and returns to him empty. Cooper comments on Nina's dress, implying she could have a better new life if she settled with him. I feel that costumes are really important elements that mark out many aspects of Vera Cruz. And these were lavishly designed by Norma Koch, who I must add was responsible for the costumes of my favourite non-Western female gunslinger, Peggy Cummins, in Gun Crazy. 
One symbolic scene relating to this is where Nina insists on wearing the other woman's red silk dress by the riverside in a bid to satisfy her greed and entice an uncomfortable Ben Train. A personal high point for me is that by the end of Vera Cruz, the roles of these two women are virtually reversed. The woman of supposed high moral stature is exposed as an absolutely conniving and vile character, quite deservedly left bereft of both the riches and the men that she tried to acquire by the end. Nina, however, appears to have grown into the more sympathetic and loyal character of the two, certainly more worthy of Train's respect, and I like to think heading towards a better future for herself as she rushes to be at his side in the final scene. There are so many good scenes between these two actresses. I mean, not between them together on screen, but with them in the film. The moment that really stands out for me when it comes to The Countess is that shock cut that we get when the caravan is attacked suddenly, and that one attacker comes running up to the stagecoach, and she shoots him in the forehead, right between the eyes. And Aldridge gives us one of those like horror movie cuts where we get this sudden burst of blood out of this guy's forehead. And The Countess almost looks terrified by what she's done. It's the first time we've seen her get her hands dirty. Before this, she's just sort of conniving, as you said. But here, she sees what these guys actually have to do. I'm not sure if this is the first person she's ever killed in her life, but it it really stands out as this great moment. The look on her face, yeah. the way it's edited, and the blood that we actually get, which is kind of interesting in an early 50s Western. It's pretty gory at times. So that scene really stands out for me as far as the Countess goes. Yeah. As far as Nina, the takeaway that I get from this movie, if I have to conjure her image up in my head, it's her driving that covered wagon along with all of these horses around her. And you can tell that Sarah Montiel, at least in a few shots, is doing it. She, there's no stunt woman there. I mean, there might be in some shots, but there are some clear images of her hauling ass <laughs> with these team of horses in front of her. It's it's fantastic. She's she's a quite a feisty gal. She was quite a big star and kind of considered a, a national treasure in Spain. She'd done like, I think it was 14 movies in something like three or four years before she did Vera Cruz. So she was quite quite seasoned from quite a young age as an actress. Yeah, her her life story is almost more incredible than the characters that she's played. Oh, like, definitely. Was she married to Anthony Mann for a while? She was, That's, yeah, I mean, briefly. How, is, how crazy is that? And had friendships with Ernest Hemingway, Elizabeth Taylor, Billie Holiday. This is like yeah. an interesting, you could make a movie about her. Definitely. And it would be fascinating. Her singing life, her singing career was huge. I think she got like a gold record for one of her soundtracks and... She was just a massive star in Europe who really quickly called her back after Vera Cruz with like a multi-million pound contract. So um, I'm sure she would have been a much bigger star in America had that not have happened. The other really delightful thing about the women characters in this movie is how they don't stand apart from the story. Oftentimes in Westerns, women are, are kind of peripheral. Yeah. That they're there to act as – have a redemptive function. Whereas here, both women are just as duplicitous and they scheming are. and conniving, right? As any of as any of the male characters, so they're actually woven into the fabric of the story in a way that isn't usually the case, especially for westerns in the fifties. That's that I agree with you, and that's something I I found as well. I saw a few scathing re reviews that the women in Vera Cruz were just dolly birds, but I completely disagree with that. I think they were really strong. Uh, integral characters to everything and I, I think 
I think that's right. And I, I saw those reviews as well. And oftentimes when a movie is doing something unusual, especially within the context of a really well-established genre, it can actually be difficult for critics to appreciate in the moment exactly what's happening. And it seems in many ways Veracruz is that type of Western. Yeah, I agree. Veracruz, have a care if you're riding this stranger. Hide your heart, it's in danger in Veracruz. Veracruz, 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 where a kiss in the night may enrich you. Or enchant or bewitch you just as you choose. All right, Matt, what is your first topic about Veracruz? My first choice is the film's amazing 360-degree camera move. Now, one of the things I admire most about the work of Oscar-winning cinematographer Ernest Laszlo is the visual flair that he applied to the genre movies he made throughout his career. Although he shot a number of acclaimed dramas like Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg, today he's often recognized for the stylized thrillers and science fiction films that he worked on. Classics like DOA, Kiss Me Deadly, and Logan's Run have really come to define Laszlo's visual aesthetic over time. He was a master at designing clever lighting effects and elaborately choreographed camera moves, which lent a fever dream quality to the movies that he photographed. And that's especially true of Vera Cruz, which could have been shot by any number of journeyman cinematographers, but was, lucky for us, lensed by a man whose restless eye was always on the lookout for a more interesting way to tell a story. Which brings me to the incredible 360-degree camera move that takes place early in Vera Cruz. It happens about 18 minutes into the movie, when General Ramirez informs our heroes that he has them surrounded. In the scene, the camera slowly rotates all the way around Burt Lancaster, revealing that the general's fighters are secretly stationed along the perimeter walls. Now, there are several things that I appreciate about this bravura camera move. First is its technical sophistication. We don't see a lot of rotating arc shots like this one throughout the early 1950s because they're incredibly difficult to pull off, especially while shooting on location in Mexico. Moves like this require an enormous amount of time and skill and chutzpah to capture successfully, and most producers would probably argue that they're just not worth the effort. But with a genius like Laszlo behind the lens, well, literally any shot is possible. The second thing I love about this camera move is the illusion itself, and I use that word illusion for a reason. In effect, arc shots like this one are magic tricks, designed to fool the audience into believing just for a moment that what we're seeing on screen is actually happening in real life. Think about it this way. In a standard fixed shot, there's a small army of technicians standing just off screen, hidden from view. And if the camera was to turn just an inch in either direction, well, we'd see them waiting there, anticipating the director's next cue. But in a 360-degree shot, that army of technicians vanishes. The camera rotates, and instead of revealing a boom operator and a lighting grip, all we see is the authentic world of the story. It's as though the movie isn't actually being filmed at all. Now, Veracruz isn't the only classic Western to feature an amazing 360 pan. There's a terrific one in Red River that happens at the start of the big cattle drive. As John Wayne and his men saddle up, 
the camera slowly rotates around them in a complete circle, revealing nothing but the desolate Texas landscape on all sides. That immersive effect is well deployed in Veracruz. As Lancaster slowly turns and the fighters step into view around him, we feel that moment in the pit of our stomachs. What could easily have been a simple revelation, we have you surrounded, instead becomes a heart-stopping visual moment. It's the kind of powerful technique that sets Ernest Laszlo apart from his peers. So in my uh, various professions, I'm often asked, how do you know when a movie is good? And there's, of course, many ways that you can go about answering it. But I'm, I'm a big proponent of looking closely at movies, what some of us call formal analysis. So one answer I always give is when you're watching a movie and there's an amazing moment, uh, aesthetically, technically, a moment that really hits you and impresses you. And you just can't believe that this is just such a beautiful moment in a film. But what makes it a good movie is when you can take that moment and then you can see how it's connected to other, usually smaller things that the film does over the course of its running time. So this is just such an example that we get this audacious 360 degree reveal of the Waristas. But what it does is establish for us a motif of the Waristas secretly observing the heroes and other characters secretly observing each other over the rest of the movie. Now, no camera movement is, again, as audacious as this one. They tend to be more subtle, a subtle pan to the left that reveals a warista in a tree, a subtle tilt up to reveal somebody listening close by. But this is one indication of how thoughtful the film's style is because it connects these sophisticated camera moves to something that gives us a, a sense of the world that we're in, as you said, Matt, where we feel like this is a place where you could be ambushed at any moment and at any time anyone could be listening in to what you're talking about. And I love too that it's sort of unnecessary in a way. It's just most movies would just have them stand up suddenly. We'd get a wide shot of this whole courtyard and boom, they all rise up and we just kind of go, oh, they're surrounded. Yeah. But here, when it slowly starts and we realize what's happening as the guys stand up in concert with each other, one after another, like they're at a football game and they're doing the wave, we start going like, oh my God, they're yeah. in trouble. It lands differently than just a boom, they're all there. You know, and I would, I would suspect a lot of that had to do with showing off the widescreen technology. I mean, we have to remember that this is 1954. This is within a year of widescreen becoming what the film industry believes is going to be really the next thing that's going to help to differentiate film from television, among other things. So among other things, this shot takes full advantage of the widescreen frame. You can imagine the impact not being quite the same if it was in the old Academy aspect ratio, where you'd have a lot more of the, the sky and the fort. Here you actually emphasize how many of them are spread out across the screen. And then the pan emphasizes the kind of the, the length. So it, it could Possibly. I haven't read anything to this effect, but it, it's often the case in early widescreen films that they need to have this moment that really shows off what the technology can do. Oftentimes, it's a little bit awkward, but here it works perfectly. It's such a cool moment that they actually used it in the trailer to the film. If you watch the trailer again, almost the entire 360 pan is put in there. I don't think they put the entire thing in because it's so long. It's so, it's so, like you said, audacious. I, I always wonder... How many times did they do it? How many like, takes? How did they go like, oh, no, re redo it. So-and-so didn't stand up right or there was a too much – it was too fast. Or yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I love that kind of stuff. 360 pans like this 
along with split diopter shots, which I've mentioned a few times, are my two favorite visual gimmicks in movies, <laughs> which is probably why I love Brian De Palma so much, because he uses both of them constantly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I really do love that this moment. And Laszlo, in general, Ernest Laszlo, is just such an interesting cinematographer. He worked on everything from, like, Major movies, like I said, like Judgment of Nuremberg. But then he also did these silly comedies like Bob Hope movies and cheesy sci-fi movies, not even the great sci-fi movies like Logan's Run or Fantastic Voyage. He did one of my favorite shrinking movies, Attack of the Puppet People from, I want to say that's 1958 or 59 or something, about a scientist who shrinks a bunch of people down. Super cheesy movie that I used to watch all the time on the Creature Double Feature as a little boy. I had no idea that Ernest Laszlo shot that movie. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, Tormented, which is a horror film from 1960, takes place in Cape Cod of all places. It's kind of a proto Stephen King type movie. He also shot that. Uh, Mad, 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 Mad World. I mean, the list really does go on and on. Shot at least eight Westerns, too. I know he's often associated with crime movies or sci-fi, but he did Showdown that we talked about in our Rock Hudson episode. What, what do you think about the look of this movie, Sarah? It's just really beautiful and the colors are really intense and i can't help feeling just i always think about just the massive effect it had on on kind of the european westerns made in the 60s so i think it's beautiful the next awards are for cinematography that's a fancy word for cameramen but they're pretty fancy people <laughs> to present the cinematography award here is a lady to whom many a lens has made love kim novak She's accompanied by the handsome English actor who recently swept her to the altar, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Johnson. Now that Mr. Hope has explained who cinematographers are, shall we read the nominations? Right. Nominated for the best achievement in cinematography of a black-and-white picture are Loyal Riggs for In Arm's Way. Bernard Guffey for King Rat. Conrad Hall for Martre. Robert Burks for A Patch of Blue. Ernest Laszlo, A Ship of Fools. Can you open it, darling? Mm -hmm. The winner is Ernest Laszlo for Ship of Fools. I had a wonderful journey on this ship. Thank you. I'm very grateful. So, Andrew, what is your second choice? My second choice is Robert Aldrich's direction. Today, Aldrich is probably best remembered for films he made after Veracruz. These would include Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Dirty Dozen, and The Longest Yard, of course. He's also, as that list of films would suggest, remembered as a protean filmmaker who worked across multiple genres rather than being associated with a single one. Yet, though he only made six westerns, Aldrich was always at home in the genre, which offered a ready backdrop for his stories of misfits in search of redemption struggling to retain or reclaim their integrity in dark, materialistic worlds. 
According to Aldrich, the production of Veracruz wasn't an entirely agreeable affair, largely because Burt Lancaster had his sights set on directing and so had many ideas about how the film should be made. Uh, Lancaster directed and starred in the Kentucky in the following year and didn't direct another film for nearly 20 years. None of that potential conflict between director and star is evident on screen, however, and Veracruz shows how Aldrich, only three pictures into his directing career, knew how to balance intrigue, action, and humor, and was also willing to push the limits of acceptable screen violence. There's also an undeniably masculine, even macho, quality to the film, another Aldrich signature. Writing in 1957, the famed critic Manny Farber hailed Aldrich as the most exciting of a new generation of American directors, describing his movies as filled with exciting characterizations of highly psyched up, marred, and bothered men. Unlike a Hawks Western, though, this world of men doesn't offer a welcoming escape from the larger world. And unlike a man Western, the hero doesn't, as we said before, find his redemption in the arms of a woman. Veracruz is certainly a pessimistic film by the standards of the time, but it looks ahead to the types of movies Aldrich would make for the next 30 years. Movies about, as he put it, characters finding their own integrity and doing what they do the way they do it, even if it causes their own deaths. I have to confess, I'm a much bigger fan of Robert Aldridge than I am of some of his contemporaneous peers like Sam Fuller and Joseph Losey. To be honest, I never quite got Sam Fuller. I know people love him, and there are a handful of films that I, I think are marvelous, but some of his his 60s stuff just doesn't land for me the way Aldridge's does. I, I love his his love of B-movies, his love of action films. He's a, such a great action director. When you mention The Dirty Dozen, I mean, that really stands out. And Vera Cruz, especially The Final Battle, seems like a trial run for what he would end up doing a lot of the time in The Dirty Dozen. There's that fantastic moment during that final battle where one of the Waristas runs up to the gates in that suicide run with a bomb in his hand and blows himself up and blows the gates up. I love that moment. That's pure mm. Dirty Dozen. Right. So uh, you get these cannons going off and the Gatling gun. It's just a full-on war movie in those final 10 minutes. So yeah, Aldridge just hits my sweet spot in so many ways. He's associated, like you said, with some of those horror films that he did, the Betty Davis movies and the John Crawford films. Mm -hmm. uh, and for good reason. I mean, he gave these two classic Hollywood actresses a second career in, in some respects. You can see that he's really well suited to working with mature actors like Davis and Crawford. So it's no surprise then that Cooper would be a, a perfect actor for him to, to work with in this film. I think um, also with, with just just on Baby Jane just for a second, I saw it last year for the first time on the big screen. And it was I was really shocked. This is a film I've seen loads as a kid. It's just one of those films you've just kind of seen and you, and you, you know, you think, yeah, that's Baby Jane, funny, very good. Um, but it's actually, it's quite violent in places, especially for the time. And the fact that it's too kind of seasoned women of Hollywood, these kind of classy women. I mean, it, just that scene where she's kicking her, just the violence coming out in that film is quite quite a shock. I'd never really, you know, when I saw it on the big screen, I really, everyone jumped out of their seat. Speaking of that film, I want to take just a minute to recommend that TV miniseries that was out a few years ago, Feud, on the FX channel about the making of Baby Jane. Uh, and Alfred Molina, does a terrific job of playing Robert Aldridge. He's really cool in that that show. Yeah. 
you know, I, I have to jump in there and uh, agree that M- Molina's portrayal of Aldrich is quite compelling. And it's actually uh, a shame that it's so compelling because the Aldrich in feud is nothing like the man was in real life. The real Robert Aldrich was not a sneak or a hack, wasn't a crass, venal kind of scheming type guy. He was everything that was the opposite of that. He was a guy who elected to become a clerk at RKO yeah, rather he did. than live he, a comfortable life as a banker. His father kind of uh, disowned who, him, didn't he? And kind of uh, they, they had like After a, he made that yeah. choice. Yeah. So, I mean, he's related to Rockefellers. So he you know, was a kind of radical yeah. young left-wing guy who forged his own career in Hollywood rather than have a comfortable life in politics or banking. And a, a lot of what happens in Feud isn't entirely accurate. Um, Walter, The great director, Walter Hill, was a, a friend of Aldrich's and also a big proponent of his. Uh, has spoken at length in interviews, so folks can go and look those up. Uh, so just, just know that Aldrich was a really principled yeah. guy who was always up front, made his own things happen, founded his own film studio, You know, was not the type of guy to go behind people's backs or work out deals or no. exploit other actors in the way that he's uh, portrayed in that at some moments, let's say. Was he portrayed that way? I guess – I guess I don't remember that part of it. I thought he came across as um, not so. I mean, not that we're doing a review of feud necessarily, <laughs> but um, I, I didn't see his take on it. I saw the desperation behind the character of like trying to get this movie made, but I wasn't seeing him feeling so much of that he was this sort of backstabbing, conniving dude in the background. But maybe I did, I just didn't notice that. I thought he came across sort of very sympathetic. I like clearly wasn't just the target to, audience for feud. I say. <laughs> Sister, sister, oh so fair, why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene... An Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers. The insistent call of a buzzer, better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Okay, Sarah, and what is your second choice for Vera Cruz? So conversely to my focus on the women, my second subject is the role of the men in Vera Cruz. I adore the opening to this Western, which kicks off with a written introduction about the end of the American Civil War, which subsequently resulted in all these oddball groups of drifters heading to Mexico for gain. It culminates with the brilliant line, and some came alone. 
The two leading male characters had me hooked from their very first meeting, where Cooper's war-weary train inquires about a new horse from Lancaster's smug, dishonest Erin, who quips, are you interested in me or the horses? Train asks, which is for sale? And Erin responds with that charming, sarcastic smirk of his that's, that's so this film. So here lies the crux of the great storyline. Who is for sale and whose morals will remain intact when a whole stack of gold is up for grabs? This is my personal favourite performance by Bert Lancaster, the shallow, greedy renegade who forms a really quite unlikely alliance with the seemingly classic Western man of morals character of Train. The attraction between the heroes and anti-heroes as two sides of the same coin is a theme found tucked away in many Aldridge films, usually centering on packs of men like the soldiers in The Dirty Dozen, the cops in Choir Boys or the prisoners in The Longest Yard. The acting styles of old school Cooper in contrast to the looser acting style of younger Lancaster add a great charm to this movie throughout. Other notable male characters in Vera Cruz for me are the wonderful Western faces of Jack Elam, Ernest Borgnine and Charles Bronson, who play various rogues along route. Vera Cruz proved a huge influence, as we know, on the Westerns that followed it, most notoriously Sam Peckinpah's bombshell, The Wild Bunch, and the Italian master director Sergio Leone's movies. The most revealing scene between the two leading men comes after the violent, explosive climax of the film, in which a whole load of bullets are fired, including some Gatling gun action. Eventually, Cooper's hand is forced on the trigger against Lancaster, who cynically goes his sidekick throughout that scene. After slowly approaching and hovering over the dying man's body, Lancaster takes his last breath and Train is seen angrily pushing his friend's gun aside and rising up with real tears in his eyes. Train walks off into the horizon with hope and a new adventure in the form of Nina waiting for him. Aldridge cuts the scene abruptly, but the showdown exposes the true depth of the bond between those two characters in a masterly sequence of emotional power that I think could well set the scene for Man of the West, as you mentioned before, made four years after Vera Cruz. Vera Cruz may be one of the first hugely popular films setting this tradition of male bonding, the hero and the anti-hero in westerns, in the list of which I would include one of my much later European favourites, Death Rides a Horse. I think Vera Cruz is a cynical, brutal, bold and gritty work of art. Its focus on male bonding, betrayal and the Mexican setting and backdrop leaves no doubt in my mind as to how Robert Aldrich helped set the scene for the new breed of Western works of genius, created by the likes of Sergio Leone, who worked briefly alongside Aldrich on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Sergio Cabucci and Sam Peckinpah, and countless others who followed. Aldridge sets a rich example of the notion every man and woman is actually out fighting for him or herself, even if under the guise of it being for a bigger moral cause. In Vera Cruz, we are treated to a unique, almost cartoonish posse of likeable rogues, masterfully burring that ever so fine line between good and evil and black and white.
I'm glad you mentioned that final showdown between Train and Aaron. It really is the perfect example of uh, what a Western face-off should be, especially yeah. when this one was made. It's, it's got everything you could want in one of those scenes. It's got the drama. It's it's beautifully shot. There's this great moment after Lancaster has been shot when Cooper slowly walks towards his body. We get this slightly canted angle as he's coming towards him, as though the world itself has sort of become briefly unmoored from its access because one person has had to kill another. It's a, it's a subtle moment, and it really strikes me. Um, and that look of disgust that you mentioned on his face as he throws that gun away and the tears in his eyes. I think the first few times I saw this film, I was looking at a lousy print of it or a lousy transfer. Me too. So you couldn't really tell what was happening on Cooper's face. The Blu-ray, just wow. I mean, seeing that scene again, when we first talked about doing Vera Cruz, I watched it. And I was like, wow, that's so powerful. When you can see the tears, those tears in his eyes, it's it's really a, a powerful moment. You also mentioned Lancaster is one of your favorite actors. And I can I can see why, you know, with the possible exception of Tom Cruise in Top Gun. It's hard to imagine somebody else capturing the spirit of a hotshot as well as Lancaster does in this movie. He's just... He's got it in this film, isn't he? He knows he is it. There's that great moment when he shoots those two guys in the courtyard who are daring to take over the gang briefly. And he does it behind his back, almost just to show off to show off to everybody else so that they know to stay away from him. Lancaster is just great. As good as he is in Apache. Yeah. I think the way he cuts loose in Veracruz is just phenomenal. You know, Sarah, I think you make a great observation about the relationship between these two men. Uh, and this is a point I've made various places that as much as Westerns are usually about the hero confronting his savage double, his kind of dark mirror of himself in some ways, that increasingly over the course of the 1950s, that dark mirror isn't his adversary. It's actually his ally. Yeah. And I agree with you that this film is, is certainly one of the first to, to do that. And then we begin to see it play out over the course of the next 20 to 30 years. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're friends. There's real. There's a real kind of connection, great connection, even from the start when he's absolutely awful to him. He sells him that that stolen horse and leaves him for dead and robs him and and you know just kind of. But that connection is just is excellent. Really, really great between the two. They have a nice sense of humor with each other too. They do, particularly in that great scene in the um, Emperor's Palace when Cooper tells that. Uh, German general guy off with the story of the little tin soldier that he used to have. Soldier. Lancaster's yeah. laugh in You're that back. scene <laughs> when he laughs with a mouthful of food is so <laughs> awesome. And he, he he can barely control himself. It's such a burst of... You can see those are the moments that bond these two guys together. I, yeah. I really love that scene. Definitely. You know, maybe to go back to the, the gunfight that both of you mentioned, you know, one thing that I find really odd... In, in terms of its unusual nature for this gunfight is we, we do, we do get a very well staged in some ways, conventional shootout between the two men. But as you said, Matthew, rather than, you know, the finality of that suggesting the world is now in order, the film suddenly tells us it isn't. But then after that, the last thing we see is train walking through a courtyard filled with dead bodies all of these dead men as the yeah. elderly and we presume their wives come in to start to look through the dead bodies. Searching for their kids. And, it's, yeah. it's very unusual for, for a Western to, to really undercut 
the kind of the usual mythic functions of these rituals in such a overt way. And even, even the way that we see Nina run towards him is, is actually kind of an awkwardly edited moment because we have these wider shots of train walking away. And then we cut to very close views of her, but we never actually see them meet. Like, I, I, I can't help but wondering if, if they didn't at some point in post-production after screening cuts, just insert the shots of Nina running to give a sense that there was going to be some kind of romantic closure. I mean, given what we know about uh, the, the previous Aldrich Lancaster Western, where, where Aldrich really wanted that film to end on a very pessimistic note and the studio disagreed, uh, I, I can't help but wonder if this is a smaller instance of trying to just insert something there at the end that maybe doesn't quite fit with where the movie has been leading. Your acquaintance with etiquette amazes me, monsieur. I had no idea you knew which hand to use. When I was no higher than the hound dog's tail on point, I had a little tin soldier about, so high. And one day I lost it, and I cried. My mother says, stop balling. Someday that soldier's bound to show up. And she was right. You're back. <laughs> Back to you. What are you going to talk about next? My second choice for Vera Cruz is The Pyramid of the Sun. Now, much like buying real estate, one of the things that I value most in Westerns is the location, location, location. That's because where a Western is both set and shot determines a great deal about how that film will look and feel. And few Westerns, to my mind, make better use of their locations than Vera Cruz. One of Hollywood's first productions to be shot entirely on location in Mexico, the film takes great advantage of several of the country's historic sites, including a vibrant sequence shot at Chapultepec Castle in Mexico City and a memorable face-off filmed at the Hacienda Molino de Flores in Texcoco. And yet, the location in the movie that truly takes my breath away is the astonishing Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan. Constructed somewhere around 200 AD and located about 25 miles northeast of Mexico City, the Pyramid of the Sun is perhaps the most famous single pyramid in all of Latin America. But of course, there's more to this location than just one pyramid. In reality, Teotihuacan is an enormous complex of tombs, temples, and smaller structures, a few of which we actually see in this film. Together, they represent the ruins of a Mesoamerican supercity that had a population of almost 200,000 people at one point in time. Needless to say, it's a wonderfully incongruous place to set a gritty Hollywood western. In terms of sheer spectacle, watching a caravan of horses and cowboys mosey past one of mankind's most awesome creations is pretty hard to beat. There's just something magical, I think, about this momentary mashup between gunslinging mercenaries and pre-Hispanic architecture. Setting these archetypal outlaws loose amid the rubble of an ancient world lends Vera Cruz a unique fish-out-of-water element. Although a handful of other films like Treasure of the Aztecs and Kings of the Sun tried a similar mix, their results pale in comparison to what we get here. 
As seen on screen, the pyramid itself is so towering and so impressive, it almost resembles a matte painting or a special effect of some kind. And yet, I can assure you from personal experience, it's entirely real. You see, I visited the Pyramid of the Sun while on a trip to Mexico City in 2015, and let me tell you, as cool as it looks in Veracruz, it's even more so when you find yourself literally standing in its shadow. Now, the pyramid in the film serves a broader thematic function as well. After all, in Veracruz, we meet two larger-than-life characters, and Aldridge often shoots them from low angles, which renders them as physical giants set against the bright blue sky. Virtually everything about Lancaster and Cooper feels oversized in some noticeable way. And yet, when we see them riding slowly past the Pyramid of the Sun, these figurative giants are literally dwarfed by the landscape and the history of the country surrounding them. Despite their cockiness and charisma, Benjamin Train and Joe Aaron appear as little more than ants when compared to the staggering presence of Mexico itself. One of my favorite moments in this movie is when Train is talking to Cesar Romero's character in the palace in Mexico, and Train looks around and he, he tells Romero that not only did they have books in the South, but they had houses that would have rivaled even this. It's kind of this interesting reminder about the kind of fragility of civilization, that everything is capable of collapsing kind of at any moment. So you have the South, and then you have a character who goes to Mexico trying to reclaim something that he's lost, but he ends up in a situation that is, is similarly kind of collapsing all around him. And then later on, you walk by these huge monuments to what are effectively, well, really testaments to civilization's fragility as well. I don't know if that was intended by the filmmakers, oh, but there I is bet this it sort is. of I bet it is. theme, yeah. right, of, of that you can't really put your faith in civilization, that all you can really trust is yourself. No, I think you're dead on. The, the, we do see so many ruin, ruins. Before we even get to the pyramid, they're walking through demolished buildings that look like they had their glory days a long time ago. And it really plays with time in a lot of ways. We see the passage of time all around these characters. The other thing about the depiction of Mexico, which I've alluded to and Sarah has as well, is, is how forward-looking it is in many respects. And there are, of course, precedents in Westerns for Mexico being a, a kind of final frontier. We think of the end of Stagecoach, where Ringo and Dallas ride off to Mexico, save from the blessings of civilization. But what I like about Veracruz is it, it hints at, yes, Mexico is maybe a place that you can go and still be a Westerner in a conventional sense, but it hints at a kind of ambivalence that would soon pervade depictions of the country. So it's romantic, but also treacherous. It's an outpost of freedom, but it's also oppressed by a corrupt government. So there's a kind of attraction repulsion that is the way Mexico is depicted more or less for the next 20 or 30 years in Western. Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster the quiet man and the gunslinger fighting side by side and each other. And with them is Denise Darcel, alluring, free with a kiss or a caress. And introducing an exciting new screen discovery, Sarita Montiel, temptress and tease, who entices Gary Cooper into her web of intrigue. Vera Cruz, filmed entirely in Mexico. 
a motion picture that stands alone in its breathless excitement. Vera Cruz, unique in the annals of screen entertainment. Now, Sarah, before we let you go, I want to hear just a little bit more about your interest in Westerns and about your fantastic new album, Songs from the Silver Screen. So to start with, tell us about your early introduction to the Western genre. Where does your obvious love for these movies come from? Well, my father was is a huge film buff. And when I was a very, very small child, in fact, I think I have a picture of me aged two or three on a small rocking horse in front of the TV watching a Western. And it's my kind of earliest and and happiest memories, really, because I loved horses. I loved cowboys. The whole American cowboy dream was just the fantasy that fit me so perfectly. I guess I was a bit of a tomboy and I just used to ride along and imagine I was in there. And I I just feel like um, it's been something with me since as far back as I can remember. That is my earliest memory, really. And I haven't really grown up very much because I'm still doing the same thing. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> watching the same old movies and, yeehaw, you know, imagining I'm riding with the best. And I've kind of also brought it into my music. So it's kind of just become me and my life. And I, I love it. In terms of Hollywood Westerns, what would you say is your favorite era? Is it the 50s, 60s, 70s? What do you think? I think... Hollywood, I would say probably the 50s. There's so many movies to choose from. They made so many movies in the 50s, so you're spoiled on that front. The horses, the cowboys, the singing cowboys, all that, all that kind of stuff, all that, everything that came with it and, and went around it, the old Roy Rogers, even the toys and stuff. I just love it all. It's fantastic. And I feel like the use of colour and the kind of backdrops and, and big sets and, and new ways of kind of, you know, techniques of of were sort of starting to happen in the 50s so for me that was probably my favorite era i can see that they're considerably more lavish than a lot of the ones in the 60s maybe yeah. and that that's a real attraction you can watch them both as westerns and just as wonderful examples of classic hollywood filmmaking yeah and certainly the hollywood kind of thing with the singing and the stage and the kind of over the top i feel like that was really happening nicely in the 50s so what are some of the seminal Westerns that you encountered along the way that really cemented your fondness for this genre, like your favorite, favorite Westerns? Um, I think, well, I've, there's so many. I kind of love, love so many. We're going to be here all night now. Um, but I think High Noon stuck in my mind. I just remember the song when I was a little girl, and it reminded me of, of being with my dad on a Sunday watching kind of Westerns. So I've got a fond one for that. Then I found, a fair bit later, I kind of found One-Eyed Jacks, which was really stunning Western and, and made me realize that Marlon Brando was amazing. And I kind of found that one really interesting and also a precursor again to the later Spaghetti Westerns, which I got into when I was a lot older. But as a kid, I liked The Gunfighter, The Bravados, um, Tin Star. I love that film. Great choices. And there's probably only one... Um, admirable English effort, which is the singer, not the song. And that was quite kind of um, 
<laughs> Dirk Bogart in leather trousers. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty camp, but I, I used to like that film. And Lonely Are the Brave is one of my favourite westerns. And that was kind of. I know it's not. It's not. It's kind of a statement on the end of of the kind of western and the cowboy theme, a bit like Once Upon a Time in the West. So that's kind of those films stuck in my mind. I just just fell in love with those and. Once Upon a Time in the West and the Leone stuff, the Spaghetti West, that's a whole different thing. The violence and the excitement of those movies is something else. And of course, the soundtracks. Speaking of the soundtracks, your latest album, Songs from the Silver Screen, was actually recorded during the COVID lockdown. And you include these brilliant cover versions of these classic songs from from Westerns that we all love. So can you talk a little bit about recording that album and how you went about choosing which Western themes that you wanted to cover? Um, well, I started with a list. I made a list of all my favourite Western kind of or cowboy songs. And I guess there was about almost 30 on that list. So I then had to whittle them down. And the choices came because I play by ear. I don't read or write music. So I had to work them all out. So there's a few things that came into play here. One was what can I record in lockdown? Because I've got very limited time in the studio and no musicians to call in. So I was thinking of that, what can I play acoustically that's going to sound okay? Secondly, I kind of factored in the fact that I was a woman singing men's songs. So I thought, which ones can be done with the Vista kind of take and and come off well? And yeah, the other, the other thing really was, um, which ones could I work out how to play? Some of them, especially the Morricone stuff, is, is quite complex. And some of the 50s stuff, River of No Return, I just simplified it and did my own take on on some of those songs. Do you have a favorite one of those 10 songs that you enjoy performing live? I think I really enjoyed Wandering Star. I mean, I know I couldn't reach the guttural kind of depths of, of Lee Marvin, but um, I kind of enjoyed doing a, a kind of bright and sort of happy take on that song because it's so beautiful. I also really enjoyed doing Django, which was terrifying with, with without a full band or an orchestra. I would have loved to have heard you do, um, what's the song from Rio Bravo that Dean Martin? My and, Rifle, My yeah, Pony, Me. That was on my list, actually. Was it? I, can I see was going to do that one. Maybe throw that in in a follow-up album, because that is one I of my I favorite songs. I think I need to songs. do a follow-up. That's a good song to sing in the shower. I, I really yeah, <laughs> recommend exactly. that one. So you're currently working on a new album of original music that might end up being released later this year, I think. So without giving too much away, what can fans expect to hear on that album? It's still Sarah Vista. It's still got all the Western. It's, it's fa- in fact, I've probably gone more into the Western and the soundtrack sound on this record. So I'm really exploring that kind of edge of, you know, away from the country and a bit more into the Western kind of sound. I'm really happy with it. And I've written some of the songs I've written are by far superior to anything I've done before. So I feel like I've matured as a, as a writer and I've definitely more confident in the songs and wow, I've got some amazing special guests. So lockdown allowing, I hope that they're going to come to fruition and it's going to be a really special record. So to wrap up, where can listeners find you online and how can they order their own copy of songs from the silver screen? I have a website called saravista.com and I sell my vinyl records and CDs and, and downloads if you're that way inclined from that website. I also have a stockist called Jungle Records in Europe 
and Music King also in England for when my shop is closed because I close it now and then when I'm doing something, some recording or trying to focus. So I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. You've got a fun Twitter too. I've seen that too. Yeah, I found you guys. <laughs> well, Sarah, I just want to thank you again for joining us on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking about Veracruz with you and about your music. And we hope that you'll consider coming back again sometime and picking a new movie to discuss. For sure. I'm a fan. Thank you for having me. Well, that about wraps up this episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. <laughs>